The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Okay, so I want to give, I want to talk this morning on Matthew 20, well I'm going to read two, two verses of script, two texts of scripture, Matthew 20 verses 18 to 20, which you'll all know as the Great Commission, and Revelation 11, verse 15. So, first of all, Matthew 20. That's a red letter Bible. I'm shocked. Well, you know, it's alright if you can get Bibles that aren't red letter. It's not, it's Matthew 28, isn't it? What a, what a faux pas. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Oh, I thought the break. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I thought you had a new Great Commission. A new version of it. <laughs> right, okay. So, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make all nations my disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, I didn't read that quite as it said it here, because it said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, in this, and in most modern versions it says that. And I read, Go therefore and make all nations my disciples, is actually what the Greek says. Um, the modern translations are... They're not exactly wrong English, but the English can be interpreted wrongly very easily. What the Greek, Greek actually says is, go and make all nations my disciples, or rather, go and disciple all the nations. There is no verb in the English language, strictly speaking, to disciple. The nearest thing is to discipline which is not without some value in understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But it's not what the word really means. And therefore what happens is the translations tend to say make disciples instead of saying disciple nations. But of course once you translate it that way, the object of the command ceases to be nations and becomes disciples. Disciples of all nations, rather discipling all nations. So that's why I read it. The second passage of scripture is Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 which again will be one that you're very familiar with and this is what it says then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever so I 
take these two verses as the alpha and the omega of eschatology because we have a lot of talk about eschatology today about the millennium when Christ is coming back the are you rapture, ready? rapture yeah we've been ruptured out or are you going to be ruptured out uh, raptured out and all that and there's all these different schemes and I think that it's much simpler than that I think that this is a, a very complex uh, thing that's going on and it just doesn't work out and so I look at these texts and I think what you've got here is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end of eschatology Jesus says go and make all nations my disciples the beginning and then at the end Lo, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's the omega of eschatology. However, between those two parameters, the beginning, the beginning and the end, a lot happens. And it's not always, if you like, a straight curve upwards, like it would a straight be curve. A, a, no, a straight line upwards, like it would be on a graph. Um, I was looking on Facebook this week and I saw an interesting story about a Norwegian family. The Norwegian family had had their children taken off them because one of the school teachers of one of the children had reported that they did not, they were worried about the Christian attitudes and values that they noticed in the children. They were very Christian, they said. And um, the school teacher was concerned about this. And this led eventually to the children being taken off. Now, as I understand it, the children have been restored now. But at one point, it was claimed that the child had said that the father had um, shook one of the children like a rag dog. These, one of these girls had been questioned for two hours by the authorities and at the end she'd said I'm tired, I don't know what else to make up okay. so what you've got is a very aggressive piece of interrogation here to leading questions obviously to put things into children's minds what it made me think of was that um, this, that the major political battle of the 20th century was the battle between communism and fascism and both the forms of socialism and fascism won and it won big time and we are all in the west fascist states now and now what that means is I don't necessarily mean jackboot fascism as the Nazis had it although the jackboots are in the cupboard and they can come out anytime but a totalist view of life, totalist government, or what we might call totalitarianism, where the state controls everything, controls education, and that's one of the most fundamental aspects. If you're going to have a totalitarian society, you have to control the education. There's no way around it. If they cannot get access to your kids, they won't be able to do it. Now, as I say, I'm not saying we're in a jackboot fascist state at the moment. I don't think we are. But what we do have is an attempt by government to control everything. And you can see this as well 
And we have this now. Fascism won this battle, and we have now got to deal with all the fallout of that as a society. We've got to live through it, and we've got to work through it. And as a group of Christians, as, as the body of Christ, we have to decide how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to live through what is going to be a period of fascism that I suspect will get worse before it gets better. Now, I'm not saying we'll end up with the jackboot fascism such as in Britain. <coughs> Don't forget that we have the West has probably killed more people than Hitler did in the abortion clinics. Millions in America, millions in this country. The hidden of Holocaust, really. And so it is quite a serious matter. So between if you like the alpha of between the alpha of eschatology and the omega of eschatology you're going to have your ups and your downs and there's no doubt about it that we live in an age of apostasy <coughs> and our society is at the edge of the abyss in my opinion and it should, could so easily turn over into the abyss now this doesn't mean it's the end and this is where Christians, I think, often go wrong. They think because things are looking bad, you know, the end must be coming. But in actual fact, if you read the history of the world and the history of the Christian history, the history of the West, medieval history, Reformation history, there were periods when people went through things just as bad, in fact, worse than anything we are going through. If you had to live through some of the religious wars, the 30 years of religious wars following the Reformation in Europe, it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. We are not living through something as nasty quite as that, although what I would call what we've got today is what I've heard it called, which is liberal fascism. We do have the violence, but it's hidden. It's in you know, the abortion clinics, that sort of thing. But, but the, the, the 30 years of religious wars were horrendous. And in the medieval times, there were horrendous periods. People were... People Times when people starved, times when the church persecuted people horrendously. But it wasn't the end. And many people back then thought it was. In fact, people thought, and there was a lot of people thought the end was coming at the end of the first millennium. And it didn't. And so we mustn't think that the end is coming because things are bad. What we have to remember is that we tend to think of judgment as a bad thing. And we think of that because it's painful. And of course it is. But in another sense, judgment is a good thing because judgment is God clearing away the ground ultimately. And therefore, <coughs> it's hard, and I don't pretend it isn't, but we have to see it that way. So I think things will probably get worse before they get better. And in many ways, I have to say, Britain has more freedom than a lot of European states do. So we, all have, we all also have to remember the blessings that we have as well as recognising that our society is on the edge of an abyss. And things could, go, things could go wrong very drastically on all levels, economically, politically, and in other ways. It could come suddenly, or it could be just a slow decline that takes a long time. I might not see, see it in my lifetime, or I might. I'm not making any prophecies about what's going to happen. I'm simply looking at history looking at what we've got, looking at what's happening and saying, things like this can't last forever. Nevertheless, we do face uh, a fascist society. Now, I want to read a passage 
are a few verses from uh, Leviticus, and it's chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And I'm reading this from a translation of an Old Testament set of scriptures that are not often read today. And this, I'll explain in a minute. This is what it says. It's Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall speak also to the sons of Israel. If any of the sons of Israel, or of the guests who have come in Israel, whoever gives any of his offspring to a ruler, by death let him be put to death. The nation in the land shall stone them with stones. And it is I who will set my face against that person, and will utterly destroy him from his people, because he has given his offspring to a ruler, to define my holy things, and to profane the name of those consecrated to me. Now, does that sound strange to you? Because he's talking about giving your children to a ruler. So I'm reading from a translation of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the ancient translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And most of the quotations in the New Testament, not all, but most of the quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament are actually from the Septuagint. So I'm not saying that this is a Bible we should read ordinarily or anything like that. I'm just saying this is an interesting fact because it says... You shall not give your children to a ruler. Now, in order to understand this, um, we have to understand the word that's used in Hebrew and the way Hebrew language works. Hebrew is written in consonants only. There are no vowels. All the vowels in the Hebrew text were placed in later by a group of scholars we call the Messerites. And it was after the canon of the Old Testament had been formed. Um, and and therefore, it's generally accepted that the pointing, which is what the vowels are called, the pointing, are not part of the... Uh, they were added later. <coughs> and the word for king or ruler is melek, M-L-K. So when you see that written, you have to vocalise it by putting the vowels into it. Like the divine tetragrammaton, Yahweh. We only have four letters. We're not sure how it should be pronounced. It used to be pronounced Jehovah because instead of reading the name Yahweh, the Jews would say Lord. So the Christians came along and put the vowels of Lord into the consonants of Yahweh, or the divine tetragrammaton, and came up with something that was a hybrid, Jehovah. We think it's probably pronounced Yahweh, but we're not 100% sure because the Jews wouldn't pronounce it because they were frightened that they, they put a fence around the Torah they said well the Bible says don't take the God's name in vain therefore let's not use it at all this was what they called the fence around the Torah another law to stop you getting anywhere near breaking God's law the problem was that their laws became more important than God's law but it was the same with this word Melek or MLK which if it means king is pronounced Melek but if you put the if you put the if you put the vowels of the word shame into the consonants of the word melek or MLK, you get molek. And molek is an idol. And it's an idol whose name is pronounced by mispronouncing ruler with the vowels of shame. 
And I think this is a very interesting fact. Now, Molech was an island. It was, it's believed that children were sacrificed to this Molech idol. He was, as an idol, those who worshipped Molech, he was their ruler. However, there is another school of thought that thinks that um, the um, children were not sacrificed. They were just dedicated. To, there was this an idol. And it's thought that the, the arms were out this, like this. And the child was put into this idol and rolled into it. And the, the child was burned up. But other people say, no, it wasn't. It was just dedicated. Now, I don't know which is true of those two things. <coughs> there are arguments for both. But the point is, children were dedicated to Molech, which was a shameful ruler, an idol. Um, to make this idol your king, he said, they regarded it as um, idolatry. And, and it was, of course. But one sacrifice one's children. But whether one's children were actually burned, actually killed, or just dedicated, the children, even if they were just dedicated, the children were being dedicated to this ruler. Now, I would say that outside of the influence of the Bible, I would say that almost the prevailing state of affairs among the nations of the earth is totalitarianism. The king, the ruler, becomes, it's a totalist view. The ancient Romans, the, 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 the emperor was treated as the divine, you know, representative of the divine, treated as a god. It was a political thing. The pharaohs were the link between god and man. And in most of these ancient cultures, I would say predominantly, the, almost the prevailing thing that happens outside of the influence of the biblical <coughs> thinking is for the ruler to be treated in this divine fashion. Or let's say totalitarian fashion, because I don't think it's any different today. We don't accord our rulers the titles of divinity, but we give them the same kind of power. A power that they control everything. And I would say that um, this is prevailing state of affairs, and the anarchy is a minority sport. And it never lasts very long, even where you get it. You might get anarchy sometimes, but it's usually followed by authoritarian government of the most severe kind. So I say that, that um, it's a minority sport, is, is anarchy, and the prevailing one, outside of the influence of the Bible, is totalitarianism in some form. And, only, and I would say, therefore, that only the Christian faith as the answer to this problem. Only where biblical ideals have been applied in society have we moved away from this kind of government. And even in, in Christian times, it took a long time for us to move away from Caesaropapism, which was another form of the, the ruler being in control of everything. It didn't happen quickly. It's taken a long time for the Christian principle to influence society in such a way that society has been to able to develop towards more freedom. And so therefore, we give up those Christian principles at our peril, because there will always be consequences of, of reverting away from the Christian principles. But only where the gospel is taken seriously, 
only where it's said as it was said in English common law, any law is of is or of right ought to be according to God's law. That was a basic principle of English common law, enunciated in the time of Henry the Seventh. <clears throat> only when you get that kind of thinking do we get away from this kind of totalist, fascist, totalitarian sort of government. And but it's only where the gospel is taken seriously, not as some form of escapism, but as as a religion that structures the whole of life. And what we have today is Christianity that's seen largely in, in terms of escapism. In fact, many Christians will say, well, I don't believe Christianity is a religion, it's a, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But religion structures life. That's why Christianity is a religion. It is to structure the whole of life. But if you say Christianity is not your religion, then something else has got to be. There's no way around that. And for a lot of Christians, what happens is that Christianity is their mystical, but secular humanism is their religion. And we must understand that Christianity, if we to take it seriously, it is about the whole of life. And therefore, our great commission is to make Christian nations. Jesus said, go and disciple all nations. Make all nations my disciples. Baptize all nations. Teach all the nations my commandments. Which is why, in the English common law, it says any law is or of right ought to be according to the law of God. Now, I'm not saying that what we had in English common law was perfect. It wasn't. But it was better than pagan law. Now, we have to see that Christianity is the ultimate political endeavour. There's a lot of talk about how Christianity isn't political and this kind of thing. And in the sense of when we talk about party politics, you know, Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrat, Green, whatever. I'm not using the word political in that sense. But politics is about the government of society. If you look the word politics up in your dictionary, it will say it's about the government of society. Who is to govern our society? God is to govern our society. He has revealed to us in his law, in his word and in his gospel, how we are to structure our lives and our society. Um, and therefore, we are to take it seriously. In the early church, the charge that the Christians were up on before the Roman courts wasn't for worshipping the wrong deity. You could worship any deity you wanted in Rome at the time. The ancient laws that stopped you worshipping anything other than Roman gods were not enforced. All that the Rome was concerned about is that your religion didn't affect the political system. If your religion, or rather, let's not say religion, if your mystery cult didn't affect the political system of Rome, you were free. So you could worship Isis or Mithras or Artagartis or who the heck you liked. And actually you could worship Jesus if it didn't affect the politics. Two emperors tried to get Jesus into the Roman pantheon, unsuccessfully, but they tried to. But the, the problem for the early Christians was this. The Romans said, the problem with Christianity is that it is imperium in imperium. And that means a state within a state. An ultimate authority within the jurisdiction of another authority that challenges that other authority. And that's what they were accused of, imperium in imperium. A state within a state. They saw it, that it wasn't just that Christians had a deity that they worshipped who was Jesus. This Jesus Christ claimed to be the Lord of all. And everyone will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, Caesar included. 
Well, this was a, a huge challenge to the politics of Rome. And when he said Jesus is Lord as a Roman citizen, that wasn't some pious statement. That was a political challenge to the prevailing order because Caesar was Lord. Caesar had to be Lord and you had to acknowledge Caesar is Lord. I mean, the Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord. Political challenge. And it was because they constituted themselves a real society, a real social order, that they came into conflict with Rome. That was the problem. And therefore, the answer to the problem that we face, the answer... You see, I think today that we face a situation that is very similar to what the uh, early Christians faced. I don't think we've faced this situation since the time of Constantine. Not that what Constantine did was perfect, but we haven't quite faced this situation where the, the civil authorities simply do not recognise God anymore. It is completely secular. All the, throughout history, there's been very bad things throughout history. I don't, I don't deny that. But even at its worst, God was always acknowledged. When you swore allegiance in medieval times to, to a lord, you swore to defend your lord with life and limb and to be obedient to him in all things, save only in your duty to God. There was always, in every medieval oath, oath, even to the highest liege lord, a saving, what they call a saving for your duty to God. Nobody could ever swear away his duty to God. <clears throat> so there was always that acknowledgement. Okay, plenty of leaders rode roughshod over it, I don't deny that, but it was acknowledged. That isn't even acknowledged really so much today in the West. Constitutionally, it's acknowledged in Britain. This is still a Christian country, and the Queen swore to govern the country according to the law and the gospel of God and to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion established in law. That was in 1953. The reality of the situation, de facto, is that that hasn't been abided by. But, um, so, we face this situation where our civil rulers don't really acknowledge the higher law of God. And so what is, our, what is our, how do we go about discipling the nations? Well, we have to model to the world what true society should be. And that means that we have to constitute, constitute ourselves as a real social order, a true society across the whole spectrum of what it means to be human, really, and, humans, and, and society. We must embody in our society our community as Christians, the principles of the kingdom of God. We must incarnate those principles in the way that we live as a local body of Christians. And we have to get this thing going on a local basis, a basis that where there is geographical proximity, it's not something you can do on Facebook or the internet. Christ, the, Christ, the body of Christ must manifest as a local community of people. And it's about being this new community, this new Society. This was what changed things in Rome. The, the Christians showed that they were a different society and that they, they did things differently. In the end, after Constantine, there was one emperor who tried to restore paganism called Julian, Julian the Apostate. <clears throat> he didn't succeed, but one of the things he said is these impious Galileans not only take care of their own sick, they take care of ours as well. And this was a rebuke to his own pagan people. Because 
the Christian society, they'd shown what it meant, really, to be a true society. This was an embarrassment to the pagan emperor, Julian, who tried to bring into his paganism many of the aspects of Christianity that had showed paganism up for what it was. And some of that was moral teaching, helping the poor, helping the sick. He got all this from Christianity. He tried to bring it into paganism. He, he didn't succeed in restoring paganism, in actual fact. But this is what we have to do. Um, but it will be a sacrifice. It will cost us. We can't do it without making a sacrifice. And whatever you do in the Christian faith, whatever you seek to do for the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's no sacrifice in it, it won't be worth anything. Because we have to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Now by sacrifice, I don't mean suffering for the sake of it. There's no value in that. But it's the sacrifice of obedience that we put obedience to God before obedience to men. And that sometimes costs us a lot. But yet we have to say, but this is the faith. It will be a sacrifice, it will cost us. But if we do it, we can <coughs> model to the world, we can be a light on a hill. As Jesus said, don't hide your light. A light on a hill to the world, what true society should be. Things won't change until the world sees that. And when it does, two things will happen. When the world sees that, many people will want to join. And those who don't will want to persecute it. So the two will come together. Triumph, if you like, or, or progress in the gospel and persecution together because we enter the kingdom of God through much, much tribulation and there's no victory without that. But we have to understand what's needed. This escapist religion that we've got today, where we sit tight and wait for Jesus to come back. And you know, I've told you before, I went to see the local pastors, and one of, one of I explained what we need to do um, as, as Christians in an area. And I was explaining all this. I was saying, we need to constitute ourselves a real social order. And he said, stop. Stop. He said, what are you talking about? Jesus is coming back. And this is what his, his attitude is a very common one. We just sit tight, we have our holy huddle, we get together on a Sunday, and we escape for, on a Sunday into our worship session and wait for Jesus to come back. We're not to get involved in the world. This is not what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is about converting the nations, discipling the nations. This is Jesus' great commission, disciple the nations. But we can only do it by modelling to the world what true society is and, and to do that we have to manifest and incarnate in our own society the principles of the kingdom the alternative however much the sacrifice the alternative is the abyss by the abyss I don't mean the end of the world I mean a terrible deterioration into the worst kind of Moloch worship where the ruler becomes God and everything becomes dedicated to him and those who rule mould society in their image instead of society being conformed to what God wants it to be. So, we can talk about that now.
Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.